day on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Community groups who will run the uh, only safe injection site in the city of Hamilton for combating opioid overdoses say an honest look at the sites will prove to the Ford government that the sites have merit. So time to weigh in on this conversation uh, is a man who has been uh, front and center on this topic, and that is the counselor for Ward 2, Jason Farr. It's the first time I've interviewed you, counselor. How are you? Very good, Ted. Has it really? It's been 25, 30 years we've been off and on together. You know, we've, I've, I've never had you on the air really to talk about anything, so this is memorable. I'm, I'm so pleased. How are you? Very good. How are you, Ted? Good. So let's go back uh, a little bit. During the spring election campaign, Premier Ford said he was opposed to safe injection and overdose prevention sites. His party said Ford had committed to reviewing evidence on the issue. Given that statement, uh, where do we stand now? Well, I'll just say that I, I'm, I'm somewhat appreciative of hearing the news yesterday that there's a willingness to review. Um, I, I think that a lot of us who've been watching, not even closely, can see that uh, Ford's been uh, going after some low-hanging fruits since his party was uh, elected the majority and uh, making some cuts, um, much of which he uh, talked about on the campaign, campaign trail, like safe consumption, safe injection, OPS sites. And uh, at least in this case, it's not um, a full barrel and uh, just go and, 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 and uh, you know, axe it out of the programs, but instead uh, do a review. So that's somewhat reassuring because I think um, going across the province where we uh, obviously, obviously have implemented these uh, safe consumption sites, Ted, that... Uh, uh, there'll be opportunities to show uh, that they are indeed worthwhile. Now, Hamilton's overdose rate uh, is 72% higher than Ontario's. In uh, 2017, 87 Hamiltonians died from opioid overdoses. I would suggest that Health Minister Christine Elliott, if she wants to see if this program has merit, I would suggest off the top that those numbers would probably give her some sort of indication. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, um, if Hamilton's not on the radar for this review, I'd be a little surprised. I mean, it's uh, a quick jaunt down the QEW for one. And number two, uh, we are well in excess of uh, the provincial average, like you note. And uh, that's something that's a cause for concern. There's no doubt uh, you can define that uh, this is indeed a crisis, has been a crisis. And hopefully, over the course of just the last few months, we only have the one site downtown on Rebecca Street at Hamilton Urban Core, who are doing a fantastic job early. Um, they, they, they can get uh, some numbers that uh, indicate that uh, we're, we're putting a dent into the crisis. Now, having said that, from what I understand, uh, that site at 71 Rebecca Street is only funded until the end of November. Is that the case? That's right. That, that's right. It's, a, it's a temporary site, what they call an OPS. Uh, we, as a council, way back in um, uh, the end of the year last year, had uh, all but one of us, actually, so a near majority had... Uh, at a, at a, I think it was the final uh, Board of Health meeting of uh, 2017, agreed that we would allow uh, this for the downtown core. Uh, we uh, chose a footprint, and what we allowed at that time wasn't even a temporary site. It was a, an SIS or a full-time site. Um, since, there was a bit of an issue. Uh, part of the uh, recommendation and what we approved was that we would be, you know, third party. A third party would have, would, would uh, run the site and we would oversee the site as from a Board of Health perspective and staff perspective, police perspective. Um, the, you know, the, it was a constant influx and a constant changes were happening. Different groups were making attempts to find permanent sites, but uh, finding those sites proved to be a challenge. In came uh, the, the, social, the Social Health Network along with their partners, Good Shepherd, 
Hamilton Urban Core, they found a, a temporary site, and, and the temporary sites weren't even part of our recommendation at the time. They weren't even part of the provincial recommendation. So things are constantly changing, um, but the prevailing theme remains the same. Create uh, an environment where we can see safe injections um, for those who are unfortunately addicted, addicted to the opiates, Ted, because what we have in our downtown core, and the reason why we picked the core, is a whole series prior to uh, this approval of unsafe injection sites. These are our parks and these are our, our public buildings, as you know, and other areas of the city where, you know, oftentimes we see a lot of uh, traffic. And that's not only unsafe for the users, but uh, quite obviously uh, there's a perception of, of, of a feeling of unsafe environments for uh, people using these public facilities. So taking that one step further, then, if it's only funded till uh, the end of November, what happens then? And I guess the other part, where do you find the money? Well, I guess that's where, where we're going to um, hope for um, a resolve to the study that was committed to yesterday by the provincial government, that they do see value in this and that they continue to fund, uh, that they, they see the value and they turn temporary sites into permanent or look at other folks who are in the process of applying for these SIS or safe consumption sites, more permanent sites, and uh, fund them accordingly. And the majority of the bulk of the funding is, is provincially funded in the first place. So uh, not only do they review, hopefully, come back and say, you know, there is value in this. Uh, you know, Ford even said uh, early on in his election campaign, he, he appeared adamantly opposed because he wanted to help people. I think one of the things they're going to find when they investigate in this community and other communities that have temporary or full-time sites, that there is value and that they they do offer that uh, capacity to, to help people. It isn't just a, a place to go and inject and, and, uh, and move on. There's a, a whole slew of opportunities to you know, get well and, and um, get off that addiction. You know, you uh, talk about uh, yourself and the downtown core in Ward 2, and we uh, mentioned that the uh, the city site is at 71 Rebecca Street in the downtown core. Um, have you had a lot of feedback from your constituents, a lot of people still questioning why this type of site is needed? You know, there's been a, a bit. I mean, for the most part, the feedback has been overwhelmingly in support. This is the Beasley neighborhood. The Beasley Neighborhood Association has been uh, extremely progressive on a lot of issues in downtown, be it safe streets or or um, uh, uh, different forms of uh, uh, public good amenities, development, open space, uh, those sorts of things, and, and as well as uh, uh, always embracing, working with, collaboratively and engaging with the uh, different social institutions that that uh, are part of that community they, they they see as a very progressive and a very active and involved and robust community group um, the value in that and they include around their table when they meet monthly uh, those participants those uh, operators of different facilities and there was no no difference when it came to the debate on safe injection sites they were part of the conversation and they were very very supportive and since the opening on rebecca street they've also been supportive now that said yeah you know i mean the counselor's office hears from both sides all the time on various issues there have been a few i'd say maybe two three uh different uh calls where or emails where uh, there has been some concern mostly respecting the the overflow so after the safe injection what happens to the client where does that client go are are there are potential issues as it relates to you know causing a bit of disturbance in the community and of course our, our public health folks are are on that and 
and our partners in Hamilton Police Services and, and um, Kinsella, especially Officer Kinsella, who's uh, front in the file, has been very good at communicating with not only city officials, but I think keeping an eye on the area. And that was a huge part of the consideration when council um, ultimately near unanimously accepted this this recommendation and this report from public health from the onset. So, uh, you know, about eight months ago when we when we decided to head in this direction, uh, part of the conversation was that we have to be very cognizant of the fact that you know these folks are uh, have just injected opiates, and um, that could mean in the immediate proximity, three, four hundred meters radius, um, issues can 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 be, or even before uh, they they go in, uh, the issue of dealing. I mean, obviously, we're not selling uh, opiates, but uh, maybe someone else is in near proximity because we see an advantage to doing so and of course that's a police issue as well and our partners in Hamilton Police Services I think are doing the best they can and for all of us Ted including yourself and the listeners it's it's a learning experience and so to hear the province say that they're at least to me uh, on an announcement yesterday that we're keeping an open mind and we're going to research this well that's good because you know there's there's lots of people in the community that are connected to this whether quite closely if they're one of the, the social agencies that are bringing this to the community or, you know, city staff, myself and others who are, are watching it closely on behalf of the community. So it's kind of a good thing. Is it too early to uh, say if this program uh, at the building at 71, Rebecca, has been a success? Do you have numbers as to as to number of uh, people that uh, frequent this facility as opposed to those who could be out, as you say, out in the parks or out on the streets? Uh, I, I don't think it's too early. I mean, it's it's certainly being used, and from my understanding, more frequently than it, it was initially. Uh, we anticipated, and in fact, council heard from our Board of Health staff that there's this period where uh, those who'd be utilizing the facility need to, to adjust, need to have that element of trust. Uh, and uh, certainly, I think, um, it, from the first few weeks to the first few months, there's been that adjustment period. My understanding is the use is increasing. And therefore, when we think of the unsafe injection sites that existed, the parks and public spaces where where people populate on a regular basis and, and discarded needles are, are, are evident in, in the surrounding area or in the perimeter of these areas and sometimes right in the center of these areas on benches and so forth. If there's a decrease there, we need to, to you know take a look at that and and uh, evaluate uh, that as uh, as a um, obviously a positive to this program as well right before we wrap up um, i know that we've talked about what the, the premier wants uh, is, is anybody and i understand that there is a, a council change coming uh, there is a council election coming and what have you there could be changes uh, how do you convince and persuade and talk to the government to make them understand that hamilton has to be at the front and center of this program well, you said it, 72% above the provincial average as it relates to this crisis, which is opioid deaths in our community. 72% above the provincial average, I think, is very, very telling. And, uh, you know, it should be front and center when we suggest that, you know, we're doing this because everything we've done prior, for the years and years prior, is literally the definition of insanity. It's doing the same thing over and over again to address an issue, a crisis in this case in Hamilton, and expecting different results. It's not going to happen. And so we have all of these unsafe injection sites throughout our community. We're not 
you know, unique to any uh, cities in, in the province, uh, saving except for the fact that we're above the average as it relates to opioid deaths. And so we need to, as we're, we're, we're bound to as a, as a council and as a community to, to, if the programs are available to us in the province, of course, the previous government made those programs available, Ted, we ought to, at the very least, experiment, try. And that's what we're doing right now on Rebecca Street with the a site that has a license to operate and funding to operate until the end of November. And certainly anyone, uh, whether they're provincial officials or otherwise, are welcome to, uh, you know, uh, receive the information and uh, understand and appreciate that, uh, you know, if it's working, you know, that's something we need to continue to embrace. Just before we wrap up, uh, we talked about the funding till uh, the end of November. Is there, uh, and maybe I'm, I'm asking to give away a state secret here or what have you, is there a chance that that physical building could be moved to some other location in the Beasley neighborhood or the downtown core? Or is uh, 71 Rebecca kind of where you want to hang your hat, so to speak? Well, the reality is right now it's a, it's a license to operate until the end of November, Ted. And it's actually a very good question because that site is actually slated for a, I believe, a 30-story condominium complex. The owner of the facility uh, that houses the former bus shelter there on Rebecca Street has already um, you know, gone through much of the work. I believe they come before planning committee and the next committee or the committee that follows. Uh, they, they've engaged greatly with the community. There's an expectation that this project would happen on the same front, that uh, facility that's done so much uh, outside of uh, what they're doing now as it relates to uh, addressing our opiate crisis and, and, and having a, a safe consumption site, uh, albeit temporary. Uh, Hamilton Urban Core, I've also have, and I was at the announcement last month, uh, pinpointed a new location somewhere in the Wentworth Cannon area. My recollection to the announcement, the mayor and I were there. And so they have already plans to move. That might be in a couple of years. They're building a new facility there in Ward 3. And at the same time, and I'll reiterate something I said a little bit earlier, there are other social agencies. And you'll recall we said in the recommendation the council near unanimously approved. Uh, we approved a formula where a third-party agency or agencies would support this, and we would we would act as uh, overseers, as a, as a municipal government, and obviously the province would make the decision on whether or not it can operate, get a license from the feds as well, and and get funded accordingly. So, so that my understanding is, and I just met with uh, health staff last week that there are other agencies actively pursuing uh, full-time uh, locations. My guess is everything is on hold until such time as the provincial uh, review concludes. So it could very well be other agencies that locate somewhere else in our downtown or in the near proximity. Jason Farr, Councillor for War 2. We'll keep an eye on this one as uh, we get into the fall. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, and filling us in and giving us the update on what's happening as far as safe injection sites in Hamilton. Thank you very much, Councillor. Thanks, Ted. Important topic. I'm glad you guys continue to cover it. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, now hone in a little bit more on what's been happening, of course, uh, in Toronto in the last uh, several days. The mass shooting on Danforth Avenue was, came just hours after Toronto Mayor John Tory voiced a question. Uh, maybe it was a, a kind of a, a heartfelt question, not so much calculated. He said, why does anybody in this city need a gun at all? Well, Bill Blair, a familiar name, a former Toronto police chief, last week appointed minister responsible for reducing organized crime, said lawmakers should be looking at more than simply handguns as they work to get the illegal weapons off the streets. 
Unfortunately, in our country, there are many ways in which a person can illegally acquire a handgun, and, and I can't spe speak specifically about the circumstances that's still under investigation. And although I've talked to the chief of police, I don't have any information on how that individual came to be in possession of that gun. But I am familiar with the way in which people intent on criminal and violent criminal activities can, at, at times, obtain handguns both legally and illegally, and overwhelmingly they do it in an illegal fashion. And and this and it's stopping that flow of guns to those individuals is an important part of the work that we're undertaking together. Well, two questions here. How easy is it to get a gun, and how do you stop the flow of illegal guns? And helping us shed some light on those two particular questions and more is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Phil Gursky, joins us. Phil, thank you. How are you this morning? I'm well, Ted. How are you today? Excellent. First of all, off the top, I must say to you, congratulations, because I, I read your blog, um, two cities, two attacks, two terrorist incidents, and you kind of went through the whole thing about your blog, uh, basically saying people had to kind of back off a little bit with their... Uh, some people assume right away that it was a terrorist act, and it was interesting that uh, three, Toronto Police Chief Mark, Mark Saunders a few minutes ago said uh, there, there is no evidence to support the claims that the the shooter was tied in with ISIS. I thought your blog was well written and well put because, boy, people jump to conclusions, don't they? Well, first of all, thank you very much. Very kind of you, Ted, to say so. But you know what? You know, we're, we're kind of in the same business now, you and I. And as like, you're in media, I'm ex-intelligence, but I'm also, I'm retired now. And we want to know, right? We want to know what does this mean? What happened? Uh, what were the ties, if any? Uh, what actually took place? And we want the answers now. We don't want to wait. And unfortunately, when you work in security intelligence or you work in law enforcement, you have to wait. You have to allow investigations to unfold. You have to allow information. You have to gather the information, figure out the information is any good, because, you know, I've learned over life that people lie sometimes, and then figure out what it means. So I think as, a, as Canadians, we've got to be patient. I understand the, the need to want to know. But let's give our officials time to figure things out. Now let's uh, talk about uh, the getting uh, the guns in Toronto. Apparently it has been learned, and our our, uh, our friends at Global News uh, have now uh, posted out that they have learned, and it's been confirmed, I guess, that uh, the Danforth shooter got his handgun illegally, although it's not known from where. That kind of ties in with the clip we played of uh, from Bill Blair. Uh, as a former uh, person who was involved in law enforcement and what have you, I guess I know the answer to this question. How frustrating is it to stop the flow of illegal guns? And I guess part two of that is, can you? Well, they're great questions, Ted. And, and, and you know, um, I, my heart does go out to law enforcement and, and also to border officials. Because let's face it, where are these guns coming from? Uh, they're not coming from Greenland. Uh, and they're not coming from Europe, for the most part, to the best of my knowledge. They're coming from south of the border. And you know as well as I do, having been across the border, how many vehicles go by every single day. You can't stop everyone. You can't search everyone. So it's an almost impossible task. And, you know, we, we unfortunately live next to a country where there's a bazillion, gazillion guns. That's my official uh, numeric estimate. Mm -hmm. And some of them make their way north. And, and I don't know how you interdict that without prior intelligence. And if I can just make one quick sort of analogy here, way back with the Toronto 18 and in 2006, 2005, the case I worked on was that thesis, we knew that two of the characters were bringing a gun across the border. We had intelligence. So we told the border folks, random that car. They random that car and they found the gun. So without intelligence, it's almost impossible to stop. I wanted to ask uh, from a, a policing standpoint, because apparently uh, the shooter, uh, the term uh, was known to police. Uh, I guess there were red flags raised, but legally, 
did they have any reason to, I don't want to say stop what happened, but if there were red flags raised and people want to know what could have been done about it? Well, my understanding, Ted, is that the red flags were raised with respect to a mental health issue. So what that it seems to indicate to me is that, you know, there's all kinds of people in Canada, you know, anywhere from one in four to one in five Canadians suffer from mental health, according to the CMHA. So there's, you know, a variety of things. Are you a threat to yourself? Are you a threat to your family? Are you a threat to your society? And then law enforcement has various, I guess, mechanisms to deal with that, all the way from you know, uh, mandating counseling to, and in the worst cases, actually recommending that somebody be, you know, institutionalized for help kind of thing. So it strikes me that in this case with Mr. Hussein on Sunday night, that he was known to police, you know, the phrase that you used, uh, with respect to mental health. And what do you do with that? I mean, if the person isn't an immediate threat to public safety or a threat to himself, they're probably, I think they're, they're handcuffed, no pun intended, uh, with what they can do with a person like that. Last uh, night, uh, the City of Toronto Council asked Ottawa to ban the sale of handguns within city limits. They voted 41-4 to to approve a motion to urge the federal government to forbid the sale of handguns in the city. Um, Will that uh, help at all, or is it uh, the illegal guns that are the major problem now? I I think it's the latter, Ted. I mean, I don't know how many handguns are sold legally in Toronto or Ontario or Canada, for that matter. I'm actually surprised it is legal to buy a handgun. I thought it wasn't in this country. There's so much I know about guns. But you can cut off the the legal, you know, venue for acquiring weapons. And, and, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? I don't know what the estimates are, but I'm pretty sure the, the amount of weaponry that's available illegally either through gangs or organized crime or smugglers or whatever, is several orders of magnitude bigger than the legal sale of guns. So, you know, yeah, sure, let's cut off legal sale of guns, but that's, you know, and that's good. That's probably a good thing. Um, I agree with John Tory. Why, would you, why do you need a gun? But is that going to stop the flow of guns? No, because the vast majority are not obtained legally. Uh, from what I understand, uh, in this country, uh, first of all, some, some stats for you here. The RCMP saying uh, support in their western region. Uh, in 2014, only 29% of, gun, of crime guns were successfully traced. Um, apparently, a would-be owner has to attend a safety course and pass a test and then apply for a, what's known as a PAL, a Possession and Acquisition License. And they have to a- answer questions like, have you suffered from or been diagnosed or treated by a medical practitioner for depression, alcohol, drug? or substance abuse, emotional problems. Uh, to me, uh, if if I was and I applied for a gun, it's really easy to answer no to those questions, is it not? Uh, absolutely. It's like when you fill out your tax form. Um, I'm not going to make any admissions on the radio here to you, Ted, but I'm sure that a, a, maybe one or two Canadians on occasion has not disclosed all their income on their CRA form at tax time. So you're absolutely right. If you're bent on acquiring a weapon, and it says on the form, you may not have this weapon if you have X, Y, or Z. Well, guess what? I don't have X, Y, or Z. Give me my gun. Uh, unless there's a way to, to do an investigation and look at that. And maybe we need to talk more about background checks um, for people that, are, that, that, that do seek to acquire weapons. And then, you know, who's going to pay for that? And how long does it take? Investigations take time. So these are really complicated questions. And just, you know, saying tick a box if you had mental health issues, I'd be very surprised if most people honestly said, oh, yeah, that's me. Okay, I guess I don't, I don't deserve a gun then. It sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? 
You know, it's interesting uh, numbers as well from Toronto. Um, in 2016, uh, 2,200 uh, licenses were revoked, 424 for mental health. But to your point, there are some people that say, yeah, but I would suggest there's a lot of people that are saying uh, basically fudging the or lying, if you will, not, not telling the truth when they fill out those applications, right? Well, yeah, and, and we know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess that the numbers of gun licenses pales in comparison to the numbers of guns that, for which there are no licenses, i.e. they were acquired illegally. And if you're a gangbanger on the streets of Toronto, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, I'm going to spitball here, Ted, you don't apply for a license and you don't fill out a form. So are we capturing, in fact, the um, numbers in terms of, of, of how many weapons are out there? I think the answer is no. And then it becomes a really good question, well, how do you do that? And to me, again, I'm an old intel guy. I'm sorry. It's hard to break old habits. Yep. Uh, it's, through, it's through intelligence. It's through investigation. It's the only way you're going to figure this out, not by looking at a bunch of forms that people fill in. Uh, General, well, it's kind of a loaded question. You talk about your, your past in intelligence and law enforcement and what have you. Um, could this event on Sunday have been prevented at all? In theory, maybe. If the mental health issues that Mr. Hussein allegedly suffered from were so serious that he would have received some kind of attention, if not all the way up to institutionalization. But you, know, you and I both know, Ted, that you know, the mental health care system in this country is badly overstretched. So unless there was a, a really good cause for the police to say, this man poses a clear and present danger either to himself, his family, or the community, I think the answer is no. And then even if they had wanted to have him committed, I mean, my understanding is that's a very convoluted process in this country. There are human rights issues involved. There are privacy issues involved. So, you know, I think we always want to say, what, why wasn't this stopped? Where were the cops? Where were, you know, where were the authorities? Unfortunately, and this is going to sound awful, and no disrespect intended to the victims, especially, you know, the little, little girl died, yep. the other the graduate died. Sometimes you can't stop these things. Um, Thankfully, they're, they're, they're infrequent. And I think that's, a, you know, for your listeners to realize, as bad as this is, and it's been a terrible year for the folks in the GTA, I'm, I'm here in Ottawa now, and it's not nearly as bad here. Uh, as bad as it's been, these are still rather rare events, and we have to be thankful for that, right? Before we wrap up, I did want to ask, because we, uh, we've we been talking about this on and off, and, you know, stemming the flow of guns, and you talk about the intelligence with the the situation in Toronto, and they flag the car and what have you, would throwing more money at hiring more border guards, more intelligence officers, more training, would that maybe solve part of this problem? Absolutely. The more people on the ground, be they, you know, be officers on foot patrol or CBSA officers or intelligence officers with CSIS or with the RCMP, absolutely. The more numbers you have, the more investigations you can carry out, uh, the more stones you can overturn. But I think we have to be very careful with assuming that throwing money and resources is going to eliminate the problem. The problem will be never eliminated. It can be decreased uh, in ver- to varying degrees depending on the determinant of resources. But thinking we get to a society, Ted, where this never happens is a pipe dream. And I think people have to realize that. So um, the long story short, then, what you're saying is people should continue to live their lives, not be fearful. And uh, I guess being vigilant is part of our, our new normal, is it? Oh, yeah. But I would argue it always has been, Ted. I mean, I live my life. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a Canadian. I'm a very proud Canadian. I, I've been all across this country. I never say no to, to, to going to give a speech somewhere or attend a conference. I mean, I'm not stupid. I mean, if, I'm, if I know that a certain part of town is iffy, 
Um, I won't, I'll be a little more careful there, but am I going to stop going down downtown Toronto because of a gun shooting on, on Sunday? Absolutely not. In fact, I was in, I was in Toronto during the shooting. I was on uh, I was on Queen's Key. I was uh, speaking at a conference on Monday, and I'll do it in a heartbeat tomorrow. So, as, as horrible as this is, and it, and it causes fear, we have to recognize that it does not happen every day. The chances of it happening to you are really, really, really slim, and you have to just go out and live your life and not sit in your basement and duct tape the windows out of fear. Interesting point. Uh, last point I wanted to uh, bring up, uh, we talked about uh, how people get guns and what, what has been done. I know amnesty programs, they've done it here in Hamilton, they've done it in Toronto, where citizens can turn in firearms without penalty. Again, great idea, but you and I would both suggest that the, uh, the quote-unquote, the bad guys aren't handing in the guns. Why would they? Right? Why would they? Because either they, they think they need it for their own protective reasons, or they needed to carry out the crimes that they want to carry out to get money or drugs, whatever it is. So amnesty programs are great. When you discover your, your, your great-grandfather's old hunting rifle in the attic, you think, what am I doing with this thing? I don't want this thing. Uh, or somebody who has a change of heart. But for people who see the, the possession of guns as part of who they are, or who, who need it, or perceive that they need it to do whatever it is they want to do, an amnesty is completely irrelevant. So, yeah, I agree with you, Ted. Great program to get rid of some of the stuff. But it, it, it's not a panacea, and, and, and all the bad guys aren't going to line up tomorrow at the amnesty saying, hey, sure, take my gun, please. It doesn't work that way. Phil Gursky is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, thank you for the update. We'll obviously uh, watch very carefully what happens in the next little while, and, and hopefully everybody will take those words that you uh, mentioned about living your life and not being fearful. We'll take those to heart, and I hope a lot of people, and I'm sure they will, will show up uh, for uh, a taste of the Danforth when that uh, Greek town has their big event coming up in a couple of weeks. Phil, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Ted. Have a great day. Thanks very much. Phil Gursky, interesting look at uh, at what happens with guns and how people get guns and what can be done. And uh, a lot of politicians are talking, but uh, we'll see if it's just talk or not. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Money, is there enough? Can there be more? What's involved in joining us uh, to talk about the um, program that started in Hamilton, and I believe it's been almost a year since this thing has started. Tom Cooper from the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Ted Michelson for Bill, how are you? Hey, Ted. Great to see you. Much more attractive version of Bill Kelly. (laughs) I think I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. One year already, like we all sit here and say, where's the time gone? But literally, where has the time gone? Let's go back and talk about this program that is a year in now. Kind of how all this came about. Mm-hmm. It, it came about as a bit of a surprise to us. We knew the provincial government, the previous provincial government, was thinking about doing an experiment on basic income. Um, but it was really Premier Wynn came to town uh, one day last April and announced that Hamilton was going to be the pilot site along with Thunder Bay and Lindsay mm-hmm. in eastern Ontario. And uh, so we had this drop a little bit in our lap, and uh, there were lots of great advocates talking about basic income locally, but, but it really made Hamilton, quite frankly, the epicenter of, of this basic income movement. And it's, it's been quite fascinating to see how people have uh, been applying for it. And, uh, and now the er- enrollment's done and people are actually on the program. But their lives are, are literally changing. 
How much reticence was there for people? Uh, you talked about the applications coming in. Uh, I, I understand something like 4,000 people, uh, the uh, program will help. Mm-hmm. Was there reticence from people saying, you know what, I yeah, we're kind of in this situation, but I don't know if I want to come out and show my hand and register for something like this. Yeah, there was a lot of that. And, you know, when the government comes out and, and tells you we have this great program for you, there, there's going to be reluctance and there's going to be mistrust. Um, But we looked at it fairly closely and we felt comfortable enough with the basic income pilot and the direction the government was going to say, yeah, if if it's a good fit for you and your family, then then go ahead and apply. Uh, We have confidence in the way they've set up the program. And so after that, after community groups got involved, there was there was a lot more. I think trust in the program and uh, very quickly after that we saw the uh, enrollment uh, skyrocket and, and, and now here in Hamilton we have a thousand people more than a thousand people signed up and participating there's another thousand in Thunder Bay and there's two thousand in Lindsay. I think people may be surprised when uh, they find out the numbers uh, they'll get 17,000 a year 24,000 for couples yep. uh, they're they're getting that but Obviously, a lot of people are saying that is way, way too low for somebody to live a decent life in this city. Yeah, and putting it in perspective, it's about 75% of the poverty line in Ontario right now. But looking at it a different way, if you're previously on provincial social assistance, somebody on Ontario Works, for example, a single person mm-hmm. was, was getting $720 a month to live on. Wow. And and those rates are just so woefully inadequate that people can't afford the basic necessities of life like food or housing and that's why so many people need to use food banks so looking at it from that perspective basic income is is definitely a step up it's a thousand dollars more a month and uh, for individuals particularly those who have gone from the social assistance system into basic income they they are seeing profound changes in their lives they're eating healthier um, they are able to get out and participate a little bit more in community. Their mental health, I think, that's the biggest change I've seen is, is really people's sense of self-worth, people's self, uh, sense of dignity. Uh, people are, are far less stressed out. And, and so these are all somewhat intangible, but I think you can evaluate them and, and say that this has been a good program so far. I was going to say, it, it, how gratifying is it for you when you see somebody that comes in and fills out the application and then you talk about, you can see viscerally, you can see the the changes. And I know some of them have gone public with their story at yep. a different type of meetings or, or what have you. Not everybody can speak in public and not yep. everybody wants to share their story. Talk about that, how how proud you are of those people sharing their story openly in a forum. Yeah, I, I am tremendously proud. We brought together a group of basic income participants, uh, about 10 folks who come from different walks of life. Some of them were previously on social assistance. Some are working, some are single moms. Um, but to a person, they all wanted to to tell their story and, and really try to give something back and, and relay how basic income is changing their lives. And so we brought this group together. We provide them with a little bit of support to um, learn how to uh, go in front of crowds and, and provide public speaking, um, how to talk to media. And it, it's been phenomenal, the change. And they have been telling their stories. We've been getting calls, Ted, from 
all over the world from media outlets wanting to find out about how the basic income pilot's going. Later on today, I'm taking a crew from Korean public television around town to, wow. to show them uh, what Hamilton looks like, and then they're going to interview a couple of the basic income participants. We had Japanese public television in two weeks ago. We've had the Wall Street Journal. Uh, we've had PBS do a story here in Hamilton. So it's really surreal just how, uh, how much attention this pilot is grabbing right around the world. It's interesting because one of the countries involved in this as well is Finland. Yep. And that government apparently leans to the right, mm -hmm. and they're involved in this, and their their eyes have been open. Talk about that. Yeah, the they just elected a new government in Finland, from what I understand, and they are going to uh, continue their basic income pilot, and then and then really evaluate it, look at how it's uh, it's assisted people in that community. There's there's different pilots all over the place, though. There's uh, one going on in the Netherlands. There's some in Africa and Kenya. Um, a, a town in Stock, uh, California, Stockton, Stockton California, California yep. has uh, just launched a basic income pilot. Um, uh, in Scotland, they're doing it as well, in Glasgow. So this is really, I think, cutting-edge uh, social policy, and, and Hamilton's really part of it. It's very cool. You know, one of the things that I watched during the U.S. election debate was the whole thing about if you will, Medicare, health care, Bernie Saunders, one end, Donald yep. Trump. And a lot of what happens in the States with health care, I don't understand. But when you mentioned Stockton, California, how different is it for those, well, in the States, cities that don't have as many outlets or backed by yeah. government like we have we're, we're taxed a lot here but we have a lot of great social assistance yeah. uh, benefits in the states i'm getting the sense in many ways you're on your own talk about that difference between here and there yeah there there's a huge difference and, and well you know we'd certainly advocate that canada's social programs need to be enhanced you know it'd be great to have pharmacare so people can afford medication here in ontario um, but they don't even have basic health care services uh, often in the United States. And so that's a huge cost for, uh, for low-income families. And so in Stockton, California, they're talking about a $500 a month basic income, so much lower than, than we have here. But that's you know, something that they hope will have a huge difference on, on low-income families. So, so $500 U.S., um, and I'm bad at math, but if, it, if you do 50%, which is high, so that's $750 a month Canadian, yeah. which is what you said people were getting when they were on social assistance before yeah. they started the program, which tells me they got a long way to go. They do. They do. It's, um, it, it's certainly something uh, that they'll need to look at, I think, enhancing. The city of Chicago is talking about doing a basic income pilot as well. And uh, last week when uh, former President Obama was, was speaking in South Africa, he mm -hmm. raised the issue of basic income as something that may be critically important uh, in the years ahead. As, as we see more people um, being displaced by uh, being displaced in the workplace by, by automation and robots, um, we have to wonder if the j jobs are going to be there down the line. And if they're not, how are we going to support people and how are we going to keep the economy running? Um, so there's lots of issues tied up with basic income. It's not necessarily just for people at the lower end of the income spectrum, but more and more it's becoming a question about whether we need it uh, to support middle class families as well, because maybe the jobs won't be there or maybe we won't be working as many hours. So how do we continue to support ourselves and our families? You mentioned uh, this was started by Premier Kathleen Wynne about a year ago. Uh, Doug Ford uh, made a lot of... Uh I don't want to say promises, but he did uh, say that he supported the uh, project. Um, 
reaction on what Mr. Ford has done, hasn't done, said, or hasn't said since the election? Yeah, we haven't heard a whole lot from the new provincial government on the basic income pilot. I, I'm certainly hoping to meet with the new minister, uh, Minister McLeod, in, in the weeks ahead, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe get uh, introduce her to some of the basic income participants here locally who, whose lives have been transformed by the project. So I, I certainly will take uh, take the government at their word that they're going to continue this pilot uh, for the next two years and then evaluate it. And we have a great group of evaluators uh, working at McMaster University, as well as uh, St. Mike's College in Toronto, looking at uh, how people's lives are, are being changed by by this basic income pilot. And it's, it's certainly around um, some of those tangible things like housing and are you eating better and is your is your health uh, improving, uh, but also the intangible things that we've already talked about. You know, how are people feeling about about their lives? Are they are they moving forward with their lives? And lots of the folks who are on the basic income pilot are using it really as a leverage uh, to to improve their own lives. So whether it's getting new training, um, going back to school. Uh, getting opportunities to like even buying new clothing so they can go out and 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 apply for for jobs and that sort of thing so that's that's really the thing kind of things we want to find out we mentioned about um people speaking in public and what have you when you go out and you watch these people make their presentations i'm sure there's people that are watching that are probably thinking "Mm -hmm." what's their reaction and do they come up to the people that are speaking afterwards even in a quiet moment to say yeah does this work I, th- I, I think so. And I think the public is uh, finding out more and more about the basic income idea. And I think they're really starting to realize that, that it is a really important social policy. Um, I personally think it may be the most important social policy of the 21st century. Um, the way uh, our universal health care system was uh, back in the 20th century. And, and, and so I think people want to find out more about basic income. They want to find out how people's lives are changing. There, there's always the issue of cost, right? And, and, and so people are nervous. Is it going to cost society too much? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally look at the costs of poverty uh, when you look at uh, the cost to the healthcare system, law, cost to the economy in terms of lost opportunity, uh, to the education sector. Um, I think poverty costs too much. And, and so if we can provide people with a hand up uh, to get their lives back on track if they need that uh, or just um, enable them to, to find the skills they need to, to continue um, finding the jobs that suit them. Our guest is Tom Cooper from the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, talking about the uh, the basic income program. You know, you mentioned a little while ago that you have a crew coming in from Korean television today and then uh, PBS and uh, major papers in the States. I understand social media. I get it. But where did these people, all these groups, find out about this particular program from Hamilton, Ontario? I think, I think it's partially because uh, the previous provincial government launched it um, and, and made a fairly big deal that uh, they were doing this experiment. And, and so the government itself couldn't, uh, couldn't ask participants to, to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was certainly something that uh, if those participants felt comfortable doing, we, we would support them. The Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction would support them on. And, and so that's why we provided this training and and made sure that they felt comfortable telling their stories and they had some ownership of those stories. Um, 
but I, th- I think just as word got out on social media and, and through regu- traditional media channels, uh, more and more media outlets wanted to know more about the pilot and, and just how it was changing lives. And, and so we routinely get these calls uh, from all over the place um, uh, from journalists and producers wanting to, wanting to know more about the pilot, wanting to know if they can come to Hamilton to interview some of the participants. So it's, it's quite, quite interesting. You know, it's interesting, too, when uh, we talked about Stockton, California, and Chicago and some of the, uh, the areas there. Generally, when people think of South Korea, they think uh, auto industry, Samsung, Hyundai, and everything else. They don't really consider that as being a poverty area. North Korea is a whole different story, but generally mm. South Korea, which tells me that this is a worldwide uh, problem. It is, and, and the interesting piece, I, and this is really the focus of, of the Japanese public television um, documentary that they were doing a couple of weeks ago is really around autom- automation because they do have those high-tech industrial sectors, um, but they also know that there may not be as many people working at those jobs in the years to come as as automation and robotics take hold, and, and we're seeing more, particularly in the auto sector, but certainly in, in other sectors as well, more and more automation uh, doing those jobs that people used to do in building cars and building electronics, etc. Um, so they're looking at the future and saying, if people People don't have those jobs. Um, how are we going to continue to support them? How will they have the income uh, to not only meet their basic needs, but also to ensure that they can buy goods and services to keep the economy running? So that's, I think, where their interest comes in. Um, but it, it is interesting that uh, different uh, perspectives will see basic income as a, as a potential solution. So me as a poverty advocate, I, I really like the dignity piece that providing people with a little bit more money and not the bureaucratic oversight that we have with the traditional social assistance system really enables people to to get their lives back in order um, but others will look at basic income as as an opportunity to to keep the economy running you mentioned that they're coming in town today and showing them around where are you taking them well uh, my my go-to spot is always sam lawrence park ah. so they can get a good bird's eye view of hamilton right i'll probably take them down to the industrial sector as well so they can get a good sense of of hamilton's rich history as a as a manufacturing center um the bay bayfront park for sure and Excellent. city hall probably city hall How's your Korean, by the way? <laughs> I'm going to have to work on it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm assuming that, that there was a translator coming. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cooper from the Hamilton uh, Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Interesting story. I'm really curious to see this PBS documentary. Obviously, it's it's being edited and it'll be released at some it's, point. It's actually already out. Is so it? We, d- we do have it on our website at www.hamiltonpoverty.ca. Okay. So if, if folks want to uh, take a look, um, they can see the Hamilton story from a U.S. perspective. I'm going to check that out. Tom, okay. thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Have a Ted. good time today. Thanks very much. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.